This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. First Draft is now in its seventh year and recently lost its funding. So I'm turning to you, my listeners, and asking for your support to keep this podcast going. So far, nearly 250 authors have been featured on First Draft talking about their work and their craft. It takes time and money to produce this podcast, to purchase the software, host the audio, and create the show. At patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters, you can provide much-needed support for the show that makes a difference in keeping it on the air. I want to tell you I strongly believe that having these conversations is not just an insightful look into our literary landscape, but they are acts of empathy every time we dive into a writer's work, because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is what it means to be alive, here and now in the world we all share. I believe dialogue is what we often lack in many realms of our society, and I hope in some way this podcast is contributing to the conversation. So consider that your donation supports over three hours a month of deep conversation about craft and literature and what it means to reflect on our human experience. Please take a stake in these conversations by supporting their creation. There are various levels of support, and each one comes with extras like cuts that didn't make it into the show, writing tips, and even books. The first tier is just $6 a month. So please take a minute to go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. And please contribute to what we are creating together. I couldn't do it without you. And also please rate the show on iTunes and tell at least one friend to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Christopher Castellani, author of the novels A Kiss for Madalena, The Saint of Lost Things, All This Talk of Love, and Leading Men and the craft book, The Art of Perspective. Christopher Castellani is also the artistic director of Grub Street in Boston and teaches at Warren Wilson College MFA program. His latest novel, Leading Men, tells a fictionalized story of the playwright Tennessee Williams and his lover of 15 years, Frank Merlot. Set primarily in 1953 while Williams and Merlot were traveling through Italy, the novel focuses on their relationship with each other and some of their special friendships, including with Anya, who becomes a famous film actress, and another well-known American writer and his Italian male lover. Leading Men alternates between Frank and Tennessee's story and Anya's story as an older woman living in America after her film career is over. Leading Men looks at issues of loyalty and the questions around what keeps people together, the nature of art and commitment, and what we have control of as individuals, and what we choose and don't choose to give away of our own power. We began the discussion with Castellani explaining that he was fascinated with Frank and Tennessee's story beginning in the late 90s, but waited nearly two decades to begin writing Leading Men. So I really came to this story, which... It's the story, but it's really the story of Frank and 
Tennessee's relationship and about Frank himself as a character. Uh, I came to that story in the late 90s purely by chance, by thumbing through a, a memoir of Tennessee Williams in a used bookstore in Delaware. And I was just really struck by how, by the fact that this guy named Frank Merlot was the partner of Tennessee Williams. I'd never heard of him, that he was a, that he was a working class Italian-American guy from Jersey. And there I was, a working class Italian-American guy from Delaware. And I, I, I was immediately curious about what it was like for him slash someone like me <laughs> to be the partner of perhaps, you know, the, you know, the greatest playwright of the 20th century, certainly considered by many to be the greatest playwright of the 20th century, and to find himself in those circles um, and to, to navigate the relationship in the sense of being kind of in a double closet, you know, um, the sense that that he was that they couldn't be the you know celebrity couple who would be celebrated in the world uh, simply because they were two men um but also frank always had to be in a different kind of closet a sort of closet of anonymity and of being a nobody among all of these somebodies and so I was just immediately drawn to 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 that and also you know in a long relationship like that they were together for 15 years what it was like to to navigate the power dynamic that they had. And so I, I knew I wanted to write about them, but I didn't really know how. I, 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 at the time, I didn't know that you could put, you know, I was, I'm a fiction writer and I've always been a fiction writer. And at the time, I didn't even know you could put real people in fiction. Um, I thought, well, I'm, if I want to write about these guys, and if I want to write about Frank Merlo, I'm going to have to be a biographer um, or a nonfiction writer. And it really wasn't until I saw um, the novel, um, sorry, the novel uh, Gods and Monsters. I actually saw the film of Gods and Monsters and uh, about James Whale, the director of Frankenstein, that merged fact and fiction. That that had a character who was real and put uh, and told some aspects of his real life um, in in the novel and in the and in the film. But we inter interwove fictional elements. And I was really, really excited by that form. Um, and I knew I wanted to do that, but, but I really, I, I needed to read more. I needed to, um, live more frankly, in order to figure out how to do that. Um, and I think the most important thing, and this is the, this is the thing I always tell people and, you know, I'm giving readings from this book, the most, cause everyone asks about the research, but the most important research I did for this book was to be in now what is now a 21-year relationship with my partner um, and to have navigated those 21 years together and the power dynamics that we have um, uh, being you know, a same-sex couple in the world. Um, when I first met Frank in the late 90s, I had only been with my partner for a couple years. And, um, and I think I sensed right then that if I'm gonna write about a long relationship, um, I kind it would I kind of need to be in one myself perhaps or at least I didn't know enough about what that meant yet um, so uh, despite all the research I did into Frank and Tennessee and all the experiential research I did going to various places in Italy um, going to various archives um, really the most important relationship was simply 
um, you know, living with my partner. So what did that offer you when you wrote the book? Certainly I don't want to imply that my partner and I have a, the, the, the same relationship as Frank in Tennessee, especially since, you know, I don't consider myself anywhere close to being the kind of, you know, talented and, uh, and famous writer that, that Williams was. But simply the push-pull, the power dynamics, figuring out the terms of your relationship as two men that, you know, society, the world doesn't really prepare you for. Um, we have models of heterosexual relationships that we um, sort of base our relationships on, but um, but we can also explode those terms and create our own sense of what fidelity is and what a marriage is, frankly. You know, I look back on sort of how my partner and I have done that, and I figured that it was similar for what Frank and Tennessee had to do, except they had all various other pressures um, given uh, the power dynamic of Williams having all of the money, all of the fame, all of the power um, in, in the world, and Frank really having none, none of that, having to figure out what his power would be in their relationship, um, what, you know, how, you know, how they would navigate that. Um, and so again, like being like, I think relationships are always about exchanges of power. I mean, that's not the least romantic thing that maybe has ever been said. But um, but I do think that, that that's what happens over the years is that you try to each trade or each figure out who who has the power and who is and sort of how to wield it and how to keep your own identity, keep who you are, but still be generous and loving with your partner and still achieve a kind of you know, marriage and partnership that is beneficial to both, but again, still maintaining your own identity. And obviously heterosexual people have to deal with this all the time, but they are answering to a whole other set of expectations and codes um, that, you know, that we are not necessarily answering to. So it's like having gone, having gone through all of that, um, I felt like I could bring some of that to bear in their relationship. And also coming from a a working class Italian American family, I understood a bit the kind of expectations that um, that Frank would have for a relationship and how he might navigate those. So Frank, in the book, he was the one that really interested you, which isn't always, you know, the case. A lot of times people get really fascinated with the famous person. And why wouldn't you be fascinated with um, Tennessee Williams? And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about Frank Merlot. A lot of his purpose on life was was to give love and affection, and and your title is called leading men. But some might see him as the sort of supporting, best supporting mm -hmm. actor. So, can mm -hmm. you talk about creating him and who he was in real life, and who he you wanted him to be on the page? A character in a novel who's based on a real person is always going to be both, you know, that real person. Um, you know, I had to, I had to do my research and figure out who he really was um, in terms of, you know, what he did for a living and when he was, when he was born and how he died. And, and essentially what we know about him from letters and uh, from biographies of Williams, but, but ultimately the, the character in the novel is my version, you know, my interpretation of Frank Merlot that was informed by all of this research that was informed by reading his letters to Williams and reading letters about him and reading the biographies and and but ultimately of course again he's going to be my interpretation 
And um, what we know about him for sure is that he was a Jersey boy. He was a veteran. He was known as the life of the party. Um, he was a kind of person that everyone always wanted to be around that had a kind of uncomplicated joy um, and an uncomplicated um, you know, relationship to fun and, and happiness and all of that and wanted to be, had, you know, was an aspiring actor and dancer um, and you know, had been a truck driver. And um, so very, kind of, very, very kind of working class, very much a regular, quote unquote, regular Joe. And, um, and, um, and so I, you know, but, but, but he, and so, so when he and Williams got together, um, I think that he was, um, as I alluded to earlier, trying to figure out, okay, how does this regular Joe, um, fit in to this world of the glitterati and the, uh, starlets and, um, so how, you know, very wealthy socialites, um, with whom, um, Williams and Capote and Gore Vidal and all those people, you know, cavorted. Um, and, you know, for a while, Frank tried to um, continue his um, acting career, his dancing career. Um, he even tried to be a writer, a playwright, um, I think, in, a, in, in, a, in attempts to, to be one of the crowd, to be one of the people that he and Tennessee were hanging out with. But ultimately, I think his true calling, my interpretation, again, of him, is that his true calling um, was to be a caretaker, um, was to be the person who made sure that Williams um, you know, had his shirts ironed and his pills were ready and that he wasn't too anxious to work. Um, he sort of cleared the space for, you know, for Williams to focus on his work um, and made sure that that work could thrive. Um, and I and and as much as Frank kind of, in some ways, resented that that's what his role turned out to be, um, that he was essentially there to keep him alive, to keep Williams working and living and thriving. As much as Frank may have resented that uh, at times, um, it was I think what his true calling was, and that fits to me with his cultural background, um, taking a kind of. Um, uh, I, w I don't want to say subservient, but a kind of, again, supporting, as you said, supporting role in his life was actually, in, in, you know, in Williams's life was actually, I think, um, uh, felt right to him, um, um, considering where he came from. And, um, and I think once he made his peace with that, um, he was happier. Um, and so that's, that. so... And Williams, you know, they had uh, Frank had an anxiety the whole time that he could be replaced at any moment, right? That there were there was no end of there were no end of um, uh, guys willing to play Frank's role um, to get that part, you know, in you know in in Williams's life, and Frank knew that. Um, but but uh, so he had an anxiety that he could always be that he could be replaced at any time. Um, but um, what? But what distinguished their relationship was that Williams trusted him. Um, all these other guys that came around before Frank and after Frank, um, especially after Frank, Williams had a much difficult, uh, you know, a much more difficult time trusting them, that they weren't there just for the money, just to suck up to the great playwright, just to, you know, advance their own career, just to maybe meet a playwright or a writer or a socialite who had more power than Williams. 
Um, so um, that kind of trustworthiness um, was what really distinguished their relationship. And Frank was kind of the embodiment um, of that trust. Did you meet any of his family? I did not, um, because I, 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 I went back and forth about this. Um, no one alive now really knew him um, for who he was. Um, he has, you know, he does, there, there, there's no one still around as far as I know who interacted with him, um, in his, who, who, who were in his family. And, um, he has great nephews, great nieces and, uh, people like that. Um, so I didn't, and I didn't want to know about him in terms of like the family lore, you know, like the, the kind of stories that had been told about him because I didn't trust that, um, because I know what happens in families. Um, uh, people are constructed by their families um, after they die. And I didn't want the construction of him that is that these people who he didn't know um, knew about him. So um, so I did not talk to them. Um, I have heard since heard from them um, that um, that they read the book and they said, anytime you come near, you know, New Jersey, you know, the Merlots want to see you because we love the book and we're so happy that you're honoring you know, this, this, um, you know, this ancestor of ours. And, um, and, you know, the, 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 the sad thing is that um, the family sort of also buried his, um, his identity. Um, he has a great nephew, I've heard named Joey Merlot, who was an actor who didn't know until he was in college that that Frank Merlot was his uncle, uh, great uncle. And, um, and so the family was so ashamed of of Frank's sexuality that they kind of buried his his memory um, and didn't really talk about him and I just found that amazing that um, that you know Williams gave Frank's eulogy so imagine having Tennessee Williams give the eulogy for someone in your family and not telling anyone you know because you were embarrassed by by the fact that you know that your relative was your brother or whatever was gay um, so I I I wasn't you know, I, 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 I didn't feel like that was, you know, um, I, that, that it was necessary to, you know, to talk to them. That's funny because when you started that sentence where his family was like, if you're anywhere near New Jersey, right, it could have gone the <laughs> other way. It could have gone the other way, right? <laughs> <laughs> you're not welcome in this state. <laughs> you're going to break no. your legs. <laughs> exactly. They've been extraordinarily generous. Um, you know, the ones I've heard from have been extraordinarily generous about. It. I think because I approach the story with respect and not as a way of exploiting him, you know, and I my, my goal was really to bring him into the light, you know, not to, not to write a, you know, not to make him a saint because he wasn't, no one is, but, but, but to kind of claim his, I think, rightful place in Williams's legacy um, and to talk about the, um, the very profound effect that he had on Williams's work. Again, that he allowed the space for it to thrive. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So your book focuses and mostly on on the summer of 1953, but then you have another character that you created called Anya. They meet when she's very young, maybe 16 or 18, 
and they meet her in Italy, and she goes on to have a, a, a very successful film career working with one director. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the interplay of of the story. And we haven't talked that much about sort of the plot with Frank and Tennessee, but basically they're they're kind of having wild times traveling through Italy, starting off with Capote and and and, and moving on to their own adventures and other people they meet. Creating the character of Anya really opened up this book for me. For a while, it felt, as I was writing it, rather claustrophobic and and um, potentially um, too, for lack of a better word, frivolous. Um, having just writing about these characters bopping around Italy and in the sort of you know gin-soaked um, atmosphere of you know Portofino and Rome and 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 then sort of conversations with Capote and people like Gore Vidal and John Horn Burns and the cleverness and viciousness that these men had with each other. It was delightful <laughs> to write about. And it was interesting to explore their relationships for sure. And I loved it. Um, but I felt like the novel needed some air, um, that it needed, um, it needed a different lens. Um, and also I felt that it needed um, a woman <laughs> and not, not for any commercial reasons, not for any, um, you know, arbitrary reasons. I felt like I needed a woman because um, women were central to um, William's life, to his William's work, for sure. All his great characters uh, were, were, you know, were, were, were women, all his leading ladies, you know, Maggie the Cat and Blanche Dubois. But, but, um, but also for Frank, um, that women, they were surrounded by women at all times. And, um, and so I felt like um, I needed a, a female character. And, but I didn't want to just throw one in. And, um, and so I was kind of looking around um, and trying to think of, of what kind of character would work for this novel and open it up. And I came across um, a letter from Truman Capote that was written at the very same, that very same month that Frank and Tennessee go to his party in, in, um, in Portofino, which is the scene that starts off the book. And in the letter, uh, Truman uh, Capote talks about just a throwaway scrap of a line um, about the fact that the big scandal in Portofino that summer was that there was a Swedish mother and daughter who were in town and they were sleeping with the same fishermen. And I just immediately knew <laughs> one of those women is my woman. <laughs> she, I don't know who she is. I don't know what she and her mother or her and her daughter, I didn't know who I wanted to write about yet, what what they're doing in Portofino. But um, but I knew that somehow they were going to interact with Williams and with Frank and that they were going to have their own story in the present day. Um, so I had to kind of invent that character just from that one scrap of a line that they were sleeping with the same fishermen. Um, I was intrigued by that relationship, that mother-daughter relationship, that they would sleep with the same man. Um, and I just knew it kind of fit with the ethos of the, of the time. Um, so I became, so I just, I created her out of whole cloth. And, um, and I, really, I really felt that um, what was also important to me to have a fictional character uh, to interact with, um, you know, to interact with these writers in this novel felt right because, you know, you're a writer, I'm a writer. We have these imaginary people that we live with all the time who, who exist 
um, in our world that no one but us sees. And um, we know what that's like. We know what it's like to interact with real people and have our imaginary people be standing right beside us the whole time and no one seeing them but us. And so for me, Anya kind of embodies that, or the, the move to put a fictional character in with these real people um, embodies that kind of writerly existence where we are surrounded by fictional people all the time. Um, so I had a lot of fun with that. And, um, and I, I especially had a lot of fun with the, the idea of making her into a famous actress who achieves the kind of fame that Frank wants so badly, but doesn't have the talent or the drive to achieve. And um, so she achieves, she achieves the fame that he doesn't. And, um, and they're sort of, so they're sort of foils for each other or two sides of the same coin. Um, and the last thing I'll say about her is that it wasn't until I created her character that I really understood Frank um, because she, I had been looking at Frank only through the lens of his relationship with Tennessee and his relationship with his working class roots. But I hadn't really seen him from the outside, from someone who didn't know him or had just met him. And until I created, until I started to see him through Anya's eyes, um, I didn't really fully understand him as a character. So having her in the book, I think, really opened it up and gave gave it a different lens. Um, and was I was also able to use her, quote unquote, to talk about issues like who owns art. You know, Williams writes a play for her that she that she buries, uh, that she never shows anyone. And who does that, who does that play really belong to? Does it belong to the Williams archive or does it belong to her? Um, and there's a plot line in which she potentially is going to destroy it. Um, does she have the right to destroy it? Um, does she even, or, and conversely, does she have the right to stage it? Especially since it has kind of intimate details about his relationship with, with Frank. So I wanted those questions to be what the novel also dealt with and not just, and not quote unquote, just about a relationship between two men. I think Anya brings a lot of reflection to the book that does go back to Tennessee and Frank and then her own journey. But she has some some great moments of, of thought and lines. You know, one of them, she says, is that you will be loved by many, but chosen by only a few. Mm -hmm. She really talks a lot about, about loyalty. She only mm -hmm. worked with one director. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. Yes. That's another one of my, the lines that I'm, or the aspects of her character that I really, if I'm allowed to say that I really loved <laughs> about her character is, is, and how she relates to Frank. She's a very severe character, a very uncompromising character, but she's fundamentally a, a loyal person. Um, and loyalty is, is paramount to her. And someone else in the novel asked her, you know, would you choose loyalty above art? You know, would you be, you know, like, cause she worked with this one director and she was loyal to this one director and loyal to his vision. Um, and the other character asks him, you know, asks her whether she would have been loyal to him, even if he didn't create the art that, that she respected. And, and she said she didn't have to make that choice because she, he did always make the art that, that, that she expected, but that I would understand that she would have been loyal to him no matter what. And, um, and that's what Frank was, you know, Frank had a kind of loyalty to Williams um, that, um, that paralleled that. And so I wanted that to be an element in the book as well. There was a lot, a lot of twinning in the book, 
a lot of a lot of repeat um, scenes. Like there are scenes with dogs at the beginning, and then two dogs uh, toward the end. And I mean, like, so these little, these, these like little signals to the reader that there are um, these parallels, these corresponding relationships and con- comparing and contrasting relationships between, um, you know, Anya and her mother, Anya and Frank, um, Anya and her father, Anya and her director, Anya and the two, the, the, the two men she associates with. And all of these relationships are kind of referencing and informing each other. Um, and our kind of comments on each other, you know. I think that question of loyalty, too, goes to her having this play. So Tennessee, mm-hmm. before he died, sent her this play that no one else has read or seen or staged called um, Call, it, Call It Joy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she has it. And she has to decide if she wants to stage it. And and to me, that's also a question of, of loyalty. Is it loyalty yeah. to him to not do it or to do it. And in that play is a lot of Tennessee's own guilt on the page for his relationship. He he even says in there that he felt unloved and, and just used. And mm-hmm. and is it selfish for her to hide the play or is it selfish for her to to, to do the play? And, and who does art belong to? And it reminded me a little bit of, of Harper Lee's um, mm-hmm. manuscript. And also just the question of of what is the right thing to do. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that and writing the play because you you wrote, <laughs> you wrote it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I um, I I wanted her to struggle with those questions. Exactly. Uh, as, as you said, you, you 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 said it much better than I could um, about um, those that 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 decisions she had to make about because she considers the play inferior she considers the play the work of well both inferior and also um a a sort of naked attempt to in her opinion a naked attempt to try to revive his career through her again the current going through her um to um to and and this relation this sort of power relationship again between now between tennessee and her um to get it, try to revive his career because hers is skyrocketing and his is plummeted. His has plummeted. Um, so she see, so she saw that play as a kind of, you know, a failure, but also a kind of act of, you know, desperation. And so to her, it's a mercy to bury it. Uh, it's a mercy to, or it was at least at first, uh, to kind of never have it, never let it see the light of day. Um, it's not until these two young men come into her life and, um, basically tell her, look, what you have is kind of a gold mine, not necessarily financially, but any work by a writer like Williams that no one else has seen is inherently interesting and inherently, you know, a piece of the puzzle that, you know, scholars are going to spend decades trying to understand it. So she owes it to the Williams legacy to release that play uh, and to let people read it. So she struggles with that question, you know, do I um, let the world see this bad play or, you know, or does the world need to see the bad play? And and is it even her decision to make? Um, so all of that plays out. And that was, again, really, really fun for me to to write and to consider. And I again, I don't have an answer. Like, I don't think that there's a right answer to those questions like that. It belong definitely belongs to her or definitely belongs to Williams. I'm more interested in the idea of um, Williams' state of mind when writing that play and uh, and about what happens when she gets it. 
And then in terms of me writing the play, um, it was, you know, it's a quote unquote original Tennessee Williams play, but I wrote it and um, I had a lot of anxiety about it. Uh, a lot of anxiety about tr even attempting to write a play, even, even a bad play, I thought. Um, I thought there's no way I'm going to write a good Tennessee Williams play, but there's a chance I could get away with writing a bad Tennessee Williams play. But I still procrastinated and procrastinated writing that play. Um, and I wasn't sure whether I should include the whole play in the book, but ultimately I decided it you, the, 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 that the, the plot wouldn't work unless you had the whole context of the play, all the, you know, all of it in one place. It, since then, I've had a little bit of guilt about not so much, you know, who am I to write a Tennessee Williams play? Because it's obviously, you know, an act of ventriloquism that is an, you know, a creative act and I have every right to do it. Um, so I don't have any qualms about any moral qualms about it. The qualms I have about it, I guess, are adding another bad play <laughs> to the Williams legacy <laughs> um, and um, and associating another quote unquote bad play with his later work, um, which is now in the process of being, you know, really re re looked at um, and re appreciated or maybe appreciated for the first time, um, even though he didn't write any play that became a huge hit um, after Frank died. Um, he did keep writing for 20 years and he kept producing plays and, and pushing himself and trying on different forms. And really he was still in it and trying to be in it. And there are some really great stuff in those late plays. And, and so I have a little bit of guilt about kind of contributing to the, to the understanding of Williams as never having written anything good since Frank died. One of the things you you mention uh, more than once is is sort of the value of art, which which speaks to you know writing bad plays, mm -hmm. where um, the director that Anya works with basically has this philosophy like your work is your own reward. You make a film <laughs> and and you can stick it in the closet. <laughs> and I'm wondering, you know, for you, if money wasn't a factor, <laughs> you know, would you write books and, and then burn them? <laughs> It, it, what what is art for you? No, I mean I actually don't agree with that philosophy. You know, I I put that philosophy in the book for her. You know, the way to you know just to introduce it as a concept or to give to give that character you know his own relationship to you know to art. You know, for me, I don't I don't subscribe to the, don't subscribe to that philosophy of you know art is only for the artist. For me, some of the most profound and satisfying and you know you know engagements i've had with art have been you know after i've written something and having a conversation like the one we're having like the one i'm having with you um like the one i had last night at a reading that i gave or like the one i had over email with a reader who connected with a certain part of the book um that art is art is a living thing like you he he believes once you create something he calls it a corpse right once once you once you finish the film it's dead, um, and that's it. You know, I believe the opposite. That once you create something, it actually finds its life for the first time when it starts to get into the hands of readers, viewers, whatever, and takes on all these different shapes depending on who reads it. I mean, the the cliche of no no two people no no book is ever read, you know, the same way because um, because nobody reads the same book, you know. Um, that is to me is so is so true, and we see it play out all the time when you read a book that you think is absolutely brilliant, and then you talk to a 
brilliant person who's read that same book and thinks and has no idea what you're talking about. It's as if you've read a completely different book. Um, they don't see the things in it that you see. And I mean, that is the nature of art. And to me, but that interaction with it, that that tug of war, that that dialogue about it, um, about what it's made of, um, how it came to be through the craft of it, like all of that to me is 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 a, is part and parcel of the art itself. Um, it doesn't exist separate from it. It actually is the art. So it's so it's the interaction with it that makes it what it is. I want to ask you about um, something that you posted on your on your Facebook page this winter. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> which is you had these forlorn, absolutely <laughs> devastated journal entries about this girl that you were in love with in middle school. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about that agony and, and just the, that diary and finding it and why um, that came to light for you. How fun. (laughs) I love to talk about that. Um, Yeah. So I, um, it was over Christmas and I was at home at my parents' house um, and I was Digging around for something else, and in, in my digging around in my old artifacts, uh, looking for something else, and I came upon this journal that I wrote in in middle school, 1986, I believe it was, or 85, no, 84. Anyway, um, seventh grade, and um, and I I was just curious to see what I wrote on the day on the same day all those years ago. So it was December 22nd or something, 2018. And I looked at December 22nd, 1984. And amazingly, it happened to be the day I wrote about the day that this girl that I was apparently completely in love with left school, just up and disappeared from from my middle school. And I wrote about the longing that I had for her and how, how, um, you know, how like in the most melodramatic possible way, um, the uh, how I would never love again and 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 how she was you know taken from me i mean just all the stuff of movie of the week kind of melodrama which you know is not was not unlike me then and is sort of not unlike me now um and so and I, and then i and then over christmas i i kept i would I, so i posted that on facebook got such an amazing response from people this is sort of what we're saying a little bit earlier about you know that i'm not saying this is art but like this is where it started to come alive where 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 people started to write in and talk about their own experiences in middle school being, you know, having crushes and, you know, feeling so much, like just every emotion being so raw and so over the top and so powerful. And so many people had talked about how they had kind of, you know, lost that or, um, you know, they were nostalgic for for feeling, you know, and 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 how over the course of their adult life, they managed to kind of lose that and and um, and manage that, um, and so they were brought back, and I was too, to that kind of intense, um, intense feeling, and so yeah, I kept posting every day whatever the corresponding day was on, you know, in 1984, and the story played out in this way that I didn't even remember, um, and and it so it gave me back a little bit of my memory from that time. Um, and brought up all kinds of really interesting political things that were going on um, in in the um, in my little grade school, and um, so it was a little bit of like getting about getting a piece of my own history back, but it was also about sharing, like hearing from people about about similar experiences, you know, that they had, 
Um, and I, you know, the irony is that until I looked at that journal, I had no idea who that girl was. Like, I didn't remember her at all. And at the time, she was the center of my life. <laughs> and I had barely had, I still barely don't, I barely remember what she looked like. Um, so you can also see, like, how something that's so important to you in one part time of your life completely disappears from you. I wonder about just if you have any comments about writing gay fiction and, and how it fits in, because it is just fiction, but we right. are in, in, in a time of identity politics. And I'm just wondering your thoughts about it. Yeah, it's a really good question. I used to believe that uh, we shouldn't separate people in classes and workshops by identity, um, that we all shared a common understanding of what craft is, what makes a good story, what, you know, what makes a good character, um, makes a good plot, all that sort of thing. I thought that was sort of universal. But I think that was naive. You know, I think that there is a sense that what we consider craft, what we consider um, a good story or a good character um, is a kind of, you know, Western, patriarchal, heteronormative, blah, 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 all of that, you know, um, and I don't mean to, you know, say it like that, but but um, that we are a kind of like where we we are limited in that understanding of what craft is and what a good story and good characters are. And so bringing in all kinds of other perspectives, experiences, um, sensibilities, um, and structures um, that we learn from um, various gay fiction, various um, you know types of fiction from other cultures, other identities, um, is it only opens up possibilities for story and for character. Um, and and I think as a writer and as a teacher, that's what our business is, is to open up possibilities and not to close them down, not to say, okay, thank you for coming to my class. Now I'm going to teach you like how to write a character, how to write a plot. Like, no, like we're you're, they're not there. No one comes to me to learn how to actually do those things. All they're doing is sharing what they do and we're having a dialogue about, about it and describing it to each other, you know? Um, we're trying, you're, all all writing education is is someone handing something to someone else and saying tell me what this is describe this to me like show me what i did and um and tell me what you see so getting a group of you know gay writers together or writers writing about gay characters um especially if they're gay themselves i think helps to open up possibilities for for gay fiction because you don't have that translation necessary you don't have to you don't have to. You don't have to wonder whether people in the room don't um, don't understand that experience. Um, um, yeah, there's a shorthand to the way that you would talk about it that you wouldn't have with writers who hadn't shared at least in part in that experience. So I so so I'm coming to believe that actually these spaces where gay writers can can share work and learn from each other are really important to making better gay fiction. Now. The question too is like, what is gay fiction? Like is a novel, the novel, you know, The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay, one of my, you know, favorite novels um, of the past year, uh, maybe ever, is that considered gay fiction if Rebecca is not, does not identify as gay? Um, so that's another kind of question. Um, and, um, and it's sort of a, a little bit of what I'm talking about, but also not what I'm talking about. But I think that I just want more gay stories in the world. I want more representations of uh, gay characters who are complex and nuanced, 
Um, and we're, you know, we're, we've been living in a golden age of gay fiction for the past, you know, 20 something years. And I just hope that that, you know, continues to thrive. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? It makes sense that I would pick uh, Tennessee Williams, <laughs> um, given what we've been talking about. Um, and this is actually from Playwright's Note uh, to Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I once saw a group of little girls on a Mississippi sidewalk, all dolled up in their mothers and sisters' cast-off finery, old raggedy ball gowns and plumed hats and high-heeled slippers, enacting a meeting of ladies in a parlor with a perfect mimicry of polite southern gush and simper. But one child was not satisfied with the attention paid her unraptured performance by the others. They were too involved in their own performances to suit her, so she stretched out her skinny arms and threw back her skinny neck and shrieked to the deaf heavens and her equally oblivious playmates, look at me, look at me, look at me. And then her mother's high-heeled slippers threw her off balance and she fell to the sidewalk in a great howling tangle of soiled white satin and torn pink net, and still nobody looked at her. I wonder if she is not now a Southern writer. Of course, it is not only Southern writers of lyrical bent who engage in such histrionics and shout, look at me. Perhaps it's a parable of all artists. And not always do we topple over and land in a tangle of trappings that don't fit us. However, it is well to be aware of that peril and not to content yourself with a demand for attention, to know that out of your personal lyricism, your sidewalk histrionics, something has to be created that will not only attract observers, but participants in the performance. I try very hard to do that. Do you want to say anything else about that? Sure. Just that, I mean, it speaks to a bit of what we've been talking about, you know, that, um, that, you know, the writer, <laughs> I love how he characterizes the writer as this, you know, you know, attention seeking, you know, girl dressed up in her mother's clothes, falling over and saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Um, which is sort of how so many writers can feel all the time um, when we're just so desperate for someone to pay us, to pay us and our work any attention. And what he reminds us is that, you know, as he said, something has to be created that will not only attract observers, but participants in the performance. And it's a little bit of what I was saying earlier before, like you have to write something. Just being a writer is not, you know, just writing something is not enough. It has to connect with with people. That's it has to. And, and it connects because it's alive. So you have to create something that's living in order for people to, to be able to interact with it. So it just reminds us that we don't deserve attention just because we made something. Um, we deserve attention because we made, like the thing we made deserves attention um, if, if we've made it right. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. I'm going to read just a couple paragraphs um, of a of a sex scene, which um, which every you know we talk endlessly in writing workshops and classes about how to do. And I'm reading it only because I struggled with it uh, because um, it's always hard to write a sex scene that's not gratuitous. Um, and I had a wonderful teacher named Elizabeth Benedict who would remind us that a sex scene always has to be about sex and something else. So people have called out this scene as being a, a good example of a sex scene. So I'm calling that a success. <laughs> so this is Frank in Tennessee when they're um, in Portofino and uh, they're staying at this 
beautiful luxury hotel called Splendido. And, um, but they're walking around Portofino and, um, this happens and they're actually in a, in a graveyard at the Splendido. They had as comfortable a bed as money could buy in one of the grandest hotels of the world, but it was onto the muddy grass in front of the wall of skeletons that they fell kissing madly and were Frank emboldened by the darkness and the wall that blocked the moon pulled his pants down to his ankles. He switched off the flashlight. Promise me, he said, his palms pressed to the firm ground, laughing. After this, no more graveyards. The only sounds were the Ligurian sea bashing the rocks below and Ten's sweet words in Frank's ear as he arranged himself behind him. Just the right words, always at the tip of his tongue in these circumstances, to convince Frank of the joy his body brought him by the simple fact of its frankness. His was not just any body. It was the body into which Frank Merlot had been miraculously born. It was the one and only Frank Merlot body that existed and would ever exist and could never be copied. And it pleased him so very much, its shameless revelation of itself again and again and again. Ten had been looking for Frank's body all his life, he said, from the moment he'd first been pulled as if by a wild undertow to the body of another man. He could hardly recall who he was. And now that his body was entirely in his grasp, his arms locked so tightly around his chest that it squeezed his ribs and lung and heart, he would never let it go. Do you want to say anything else? About the scene, you know, Frank is narrating from his deathbed where his body has wasted away. And, um, and so the other, you know, the sex and something else about that scene is... You know, obviously they're engaged in a sexual act, but it's not about that. It's not really describing what they're physically doing, although it's certainly inferred. It's really about Frank's longing for his body and his and his and his sort of his old body and his and his and his recognition that he himself is unrepeatable. Both, you know, he you know, he has his only his one life and he has only his one life that to Williams, meaning that there will never be another Frank. Um and it's the anxiety that he's had his entire life in his relationship. And he's kind of recognizing that um, that even though he, you know, that even though he had that anxiety, it was sort of misplaced, right? That there may, may be other men that come after him, but there will never be another Frank. Where do you write? I generate new work usually in coffee shops. Uh, the louder, the better. Um, the more chaotic, the better, because it really helps me to focus on what I'm doing. So like the act of blocking everything out, I know many writers have said this, but the act of write, blocking everything out really helps to focus on, um, on the work itself. And so I have a sort of list of like three or three to five coffee shops in right around me in Boston. And depending on my mood, um, you know, I'll go to one over, over another, um, uh, you know, in, uh, during the weekdays. And then but when I revise, I can revise anywhere. Uh, on the subway, I can revise in my on, at my desk at home. I can revise on planes. Um, but I usually can't really generate new work um, unless I'm in a specific place, or at least that's what I've told myself. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? It's funny that you think that there's a way to get away from writing <laughs> uh, because I don't, I don't really feel like I'm ever away from writing. Um, in fact, usually it's, when I try to get away, so taking a vacation, 
to Provincetown or, or, or a place that to me signifies, you know, relaxation, like going to Italy or, or that's usually when I end up wanting to write the most um, and where I have to then find a coffee shop nearby um, and, um, and set up shop there. So I find that it's just very, very hard to get away from ideas and revisions I'm already doing in my head um, when I'm, you know, when I'm, when, when I'm away. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, with each of my books, there's been one other writer, and it's been a different writer each time. Um, one other writer who is, I'm lucky enough to know a lot of, of writers and have a lot of writers around me in Boston. And so uh, usually I'm in conversations with them. And, and when I'm, I reach about 100 pages, um, I'll show it to someone. And it really depends on the writer who's around that is kind of at a similar place in their work. And then we exchange work and we give each other feedback on it. And, um, and then once that 100 pages is done or, or once I give that 100 pages to another writer uh, and get feedback on it, uh, then I usually end up finishing the whole draft after, the, uh, after that before I'll show it to someone else. Um, and um, and that, that full draft reader is, is always my agent who's, uh, who was an editor herself and is a really excellent uh, reader. How have you dealt with re- rejection? Two ways. First is to curl up into a ball on my bed and essentially cry <laughs> um, and feel very, very sorry for myself. For And I usually give myself a good, you know, at least a day, um, but often just a few, often, often a few hours to just feel completely sorry for myself and why me and to feel all the kinds of cattiness and pettiness uh, and ungenerousness toward other writers <laughs> that that uh, that uh, that I you know and that I feel in my worst moments, uh, and allow myself to feel all of that. Um, and then I take a piece of advice that I got from a writer named Pam Painter who lives in Boston, and um, she once said to me, um, "You should, as soon as you get rejected from something, that very same day or at least the next day, you need to get you need to send something else out because." That way, every day you wake up with hope. Um, and um, so I've always, I've always tried to do that, is to try to get something out. It doesn't have to be the same piece that was rejected, but I'll apply to something else. I'll send another piece out somewhere else. I'll send an inquiry about, about you know, something good that could happen so that I could then wake up the next day, not with disappointment in the rejection I just got, but with hope for the next thing. What is your favorite word? Apparently, my favorite word is it's a tie between just and seems because when I was going back through my manuscript, um, those two words appeared the most <laughs> just and seems. And so I had to, I, they're terrible words. So I had, I actually was helpful to go back through and take them out or to find other ways of, um, of saying that, you know, often that the word seems is almost never useful. I think um, it's almost, it's almost never a reason to say something seems like something else. So I, I usually try to just eliminate that word completely. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Christopher Castellani, author of the novel Leading Men. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft Radio Show and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. Please take a moment to support First Draft and contribute to keeping the program alive at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. There are plenty of extras for becoming a member, and your donations help to keep the dialogue going. 
I know you might be listening in your car or when you're on the run, but please consider coming back to your computer at some point and donating to First Draft. That's patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting First Draft. I'm Mitzi Rapkin.